actually have a special anniversary today. <laughs> Someone in here is really nervous right now. I was like, oh, I didn't tell anybody. No, we have a special anniversary actually for something that God put on my heart back in the end of 2016. And it has to do with what we do on the last Sunday of every month. And I had had conversations with some people. And over the, the end of 2016, I began to pray about what God would have us do. Just as a, as a fellowship of Christians, what would we do to be part of the solution? What are the things that we need to think about and how we respond to this in the community? And one of the things that was constant with every single person I talked with, whether it was evangelism or just conversation and find out they used to be or thought about Christianity but never really made a decision. And the biggest response that I got was, I feel like it doesn't matter what I say, I'm always wrong. I can never even ask a question. There's always some religious answer and it shuts me down. And it doesn't matter if they agree with it, it just, I can't ask questions. And I think a lot of us may have even grown up that way, even in our own home or in the churches that we grew up in. And that was probably one of the biggest things that didn't make sense or turned us off to God and Christianity and religion in general is the fact that asking questions is a no-no. I'm sorry, there's nowhere in Scripture that supports that. Nowhere. In fact, without questions, half the Gospels wouldn't have been written because the disciples were like, "Uh, what do you mean by that, Jesus? And we have some of our biggest doctrines explained by a question being asked. So God began to put on my heart at the end of 2016 to start something new at Rise, to do something that I think should be happening. I think it's part of growing as a leader. I think it's part of growing in a fellowship. And so we added, exactly a year ago, our first Q&A Sunday. It's the last Sunday of every month, and we added our first one. And so faithfully, God has had you all submitting questions. Sometimes I feel like you hate me because you obviously want me to answer questions that either you don't know the answer to or you know they're going to be awkward. And no, no topic has been left untouched. And this week is no different. So we have questions this week related to topics on marriage, topics on parenting, topics on sin, topics on homosexual marriage. And we're going to go into Scripture and see what God has to answer on it. Because right now, I think every one of us has an opinion on all of those topics. Oh, yeah, I think this is what you should do, or this is wrong, or this is right. And the problem with that is, is when we go into certain discussions, we allow our prescribed plus God's prescribed morality to block us from hearing what God really has to say. And there is a list of priorities that Jesus has for us. There's a list of priorities that he has for us to consider as we're making decisions. There's something more important oftentimes than what we have dwelling in our mind. So I want to challenge everyone this morning as we go through these questions to just wipe the the mental whiteboard clean and let God speak. I guarantee you, as is usual for every Sunday or Q&A Sunday, someone will be offended. Email me, wait till tomorrow so I can have a nice afternoon or whatever. But here's, here's my challenge, though. Here's my challenge. Oftentimes, we are first offended because our personal convictions were hurt not God's. I'm not saying I'm always right. I will never say that unless it's in jest. So challenge it. Go to the scriptures that we bring up. Look at what God has to say. Realize the point. Sometimes it's very, very uncomfortable to hear the truth, and so we call it a lie and bad and walk away from it. 
So be careful. First question is this. God instructs children to respect and follow their parents. What exactly does that mean? Now, I thought that was the first question, but it wasn't because I saw later in the question it says this. Is this in all situations? Does it stop when you get married and now your spouse has to come first? Now, I love reading these questions with tone because sometimes you can, you can read into it and make it funny because you can kind of look at this and say, is this in all situations? Like, does it stop when you get married and now your spouse has to come first? I can see the question being asked that way, right? <laughs> Someone in here is going to need marriage counseling after this. Next, you could read it in another way. This could be a kid. Like, so if I get married, I don't have to listen to my parents? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 15 years old, and in Arkansas, it's legal. So I take this question for what's being asked, and it actually is a question where a lot of us know the answer, but we're terrible, actually, at drawing the line. I have had more conversations in counseling with couples that have, that their in-laws are actually outlaws, that they are the driving wedge. I have very close friends, I have family members, that that has been the case. But these people will say, the outlaws, the in-laws will say, absolutely, we don't want to get involved in your marriage. But if you call us with a problem, we'll definitely gang up against your spouse with you. Happens constantly. And I've told parents before, very sternly, and, I, and I've, I've actually had them jumping in in the middle of a conversation, and I, and I have had to say, this is not your marriage, they're not your flesh, please leave the conversation. And I've been very, very stern with that. If you have an issue in your home where that is a struggle, it should be a struggle because it's not right. In-laws should not be engaged in your marital discussions. If you have children and you're tempted to get involved and offer counseling and advice and things like that, do that disconnectedly. Write a letter with simply objective truths. Here's the truth, done, leave it. Don't offer an opinion. If you can have a general conversation about it, go for it. But if they choose 100% against it, leave them alone. You need to find out, even if it's wrong. They have to make their own decisions. And it would be a worse sin for you to separate the marriage because what God has put together and created is one flesh. Let no man touch So we will be just as guilty in that divorce as the people who made that decision. So please be careful. And now I'm going to answer the question officially. So the the answer, and I don't know what's going on with this this morning, so we're going to have to look through a couple of verses. I want to go through verses that talk about, first off, children, and the context being young children, not offspring, but children. So the the first verse we'll look at, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. A lot of us have seen this. We've heard it. Some of our kids' songs sang it when we were in children's class. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. I love how Scripture says this, and we miss it because we may have memorized it, but realize this, that God does look out for children, and he says, listen, one simple thing, obey and respect, and it's going to go well with you. First thing that God says, ten commandments, a whole bunch of commandments, do, 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 do. By the way, children, do this, and you're going to be blessed. There's a promise tied to it. The rest of them were just do it. That's huge. And when I've had a chance to mentor in parenting, and my wife and I have done different parenting classes, one of the things that I try and hammer at is the fact that children really do have it simple. Not easy, but simple. Obey and respect. Done. It's, it, and that's what makes parenting actually simple, just not easy. Because if the child didn't obey and the child didn't respect, then discipline happens. Done. 
We don't have to wonder, well, well, they might not have meant it 100%. If they meant it 1%, it was disobedience and disrespect. A rolling stop breaks the law for the stop sign. It's very clear. So it's important for us, and we go to Colossians 3.20, you'll see in the next verse, it says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to the Lord. The context of Colossians was the Christians, those that were struggling with the faith, those that were going through different persecutions, or, or their, their, really their culture was just diving headlong into sin. So they're looking at Christian parents and saying, obey them in everything. That's the context, because here's the next follow-up for the question or personality in here. What if they told me to steal something? Remember the context of the book that was written. It was written to Christians. So these would be Christian parents. There's other verses in the Bible that say, in the Lord, meaning in the context of the God's authority, stay under your, your parents' authority. You'll see next, as we look at his, uh, Exodus, the original commandment that was recorded here, Deuteronomy records a very similar one, honor your father and your mother so that your days can be long on the land that Yahweh your God is giving you. Here's the key. This actually applies to offspring meaning young children under parental authority, and older children. So there is an honor and a respect aspect. Now, I remember actually sitting near a conversation where a parent was with their adult children. And this, this parent wanted this adult child to do something. And the response from the adult child was, no, I, I don't think I'm going to go that route. I'm not going to do that. And here's what this father's response was. You're told in the Bible to honor me, so you need to do what I just said. I'm sorry. No. No adult children have gone out. A, they have to. In fact, most true decisions to transfer, transfer parental-guided faith into personal faith happens in mid-teen years. And that faith is transferred from, I see the faith of my family and I'm following it, and now they have to make it on their own. I have to make that personal decision on our own. That profession, when my will has gotten to a point where I govern my life more than my parents do at that point. And so it's important when we, when we look at honor versus obey, there, there are phases. Children obey. Honor your father and mother. They're different. They both apply at the young age. And at the older age, you see a slightly different picture there. So you'll see a point up on the screen. Um, you know what? If someone could help me and make this work, I'll give it to you. Hurricane, you want to do that? Just make it work for me because it's going to drive me batty if I can't control it. <laughs> so God, I've had it for so long now and I'm addicted to it. So God has one command of children, just like we talked about. Obey your parents. Respect your parents. It's that simple. Now here, here's what I want to say to you parents. Have the guts to hold this up in your home. Don't let yourself be disrespected because at that point as a parent, we disrespect God. We said, you know what? It's okay. That's our nine of the commandments. That's good enough. No. No, it's not okay. And children, whether, you, whether you're a teenager or a young child or an adult child, respect your parents. Well, I'm not sure I totally agree. I honestly don't care. I don't care. Because guess who answers for your life? Your mom and dad. And then when you go out on your own and you become an adult, here's the thing that I want to tell you, children or teens right now. Don't allow an overbearing home to ruin your next chapter of life either. 
If you had a father or mother that was overbearing, maybe you're an adult and you're 50 years old and you're going, I still feel it today. Realize that if they hold that over you or that thumb is over you, that is unrighteous. They do not have that. We need to respect them. We need to say, I get what you're saying, Dad. I get what you're saying, Mom. But me and my spouse, we're going to do this. And I've, I, I've, seen, I've seen so many pictures of it. I know of personally three marriages that were destroyed and two Two of the parental groups that destroyed it were proud they did it because they didn't like the husband or they didn't like the wife. They were proud of it. Thank you. They realized that they had maintained control. And guess what happened? The daughter moved back in with mommy and daddy. Mommy and daddy had control of the kids. The daughter got back into the club scene and started dating around, started sleeping around, just exactly like what had happened before she came to Christ. And I say all of that to be very, very serious. Some of you may not have any of these issues, but I guarantee you we know someone or someone's going to talk to us. And we can lay out the scripture for them in this. So let's look at what marriage does. Because when we transition into this, marriage does change everything. And here's what I love. You can begin turning to Job chapter 1. We're going to be there. And I know half of you guys are like, oh, what does Job have to do with marriage? Oh, you're going to see it. Your eyes are just going to pop open in this one. See, marriage changes the authority structure. It, 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 it edits. All right, nice try, guys. <laughs> All right, it changes the authority structure. I think the battery might be dead. Did you change the battery? All right. Actually, it might be Scott's head's reflecting off of it. <laughs> Thank you. Marriage changes our authority structure. It, it changes who, we, who we're accountable to whether, with, in regards to our parents and our family. It begins to, well, realistically, it changes us from our primary goal as son or daughter to spouse. It changes that. And so how we defer, how we make changes in our life, how we make decisions in our day-to-day activities, it changes with marriage. So when you look, you'll see up on the screen, Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, you see originally, very early on in the beginning, God made a statement and said, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. You'll see in the next verse, the progress as he created, this is, and after that creation, then the man said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. And the next verse goes into one we're very common, we've commonly seen, whether you hear it at a wedding ceremony or something like that. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, raise your hand and, and be, be honest. Don't, don't get all weird about it. Raise your hand. Have you ever heard this before? Become one flesh. Anybody? Anybody ever heard it? All right. So everybody's, almost everybody's heard that. Do we believe it? Do we really believe it? Because it would really, really change our actions and reactions if we really treated it that way. See, God gave us a priority structure. You'll see it in the next slides. God, number one. We did this in our priorities series. You see, spouse is number two. You see, children is number three. And never the reverse. Ever. 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 
I've been involved in homes where there, were, that were, there was just problems and issues and struggles that were going on. And the children easily became number one. And it was the husband and the wife that made both mistakes. They reversed it. Why? Well, because I can focus on the kids, and, and they love me because I made them. And besides, they're scared of me because I told them I could get rid of them and make another one. I mean, there's, there's real stuff going on here. What happens when they leave? Parenting is not a guaranteed forever. Parenting is a short-term investment with eternal consequences, but a short-term investment. We have to remember that. Guess what's a long-term investment? Till death do we part. Now, that's not an invitation to homicide. That's till death do we part. And you'll see the final one on there is everyone else, everything else. It's important for us to realize that. As soon as those priorities get out of whack, we begin to actually invite in spiritual forces that we wouldn't have really ever thought about before. So you're, if, you're, if you're not in Job 1 yet, go to Job 1, and you'll see something there. Very, very interesting. I, I actually saw this in my studies recently, and it just hit me. Because a lot of times, like I was saying, I don't know that I really act like I believe in one flesh. Well, here's something powerful, okay? Job chapter 1, scoot on down to verse 12. I just want to highlight some things before we read one section. Chapter 1, verse 12 says this, So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person or his flesh. Remember that on his flesh. Okay? You can underline that. You can stab it into to, uh, a stone, whatever you want to. Don't touch his flesh. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, is, is Satan ever going to underdo what God has allowed him to do? No. No, he's going to run face first into the boundaries that Yahweh has given him. So, of course, he does that. And destruction comes. Horrific things happen to the family. Servants die. Animals die. Buildings fall. Children die. Horrible things go on. You'll see later on, go to chapter 2 now, okay? And look at verse 6. So the Lord said to Satan, see, Satan came back and said this. He said, listen, come on. I wasn't allowed to touch him and make him uncomfortable physically. You let me make him horrifically sick, give him man flu, and he's done. He will, he will denounce you. So he says, okay, fine. Verse 6 of chapter 2. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. And then you see that Job went out. Well, here's what I want us to realize. Everything, and we've said this before, everything was taken away from Job. Everything that he was connected to, everything that was separate from Job's flesh was wiped out. And then we keep going and we read in verse 8, and it says, He took for himself a potsherd, this is Job, and scraped himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes, while he had painful boils on his body. Verse 9 says this, Then his wife, hold on a second, I thought everything was gone. God and the spiritual realm recognizes one flesh. Make that connection. It's very important to realize that because when we don't recognize it, we have invited Satan to our marriage. And we have a tremendous amount, a tremendous amount of temptation, of arguments, of a lack of peace and unity because we've decided to 
separate just a little bit. It's 99%. Marriage isn't compromise. It's 100-100. It's not 50-50. I don't give you a little, and then you give me a little, and I hold on to my stuff. That's called a marriage waiting to fail. See, the spiritual realm recognizes one flesh. When Yahweh says to the tempter, to the Satan, he says this, you can do anything you want, spare his life. And he and his wife are the only ones alive. Now, interesting side note, I've heard a lot of pastors and teachers, and even I myself have joked around about it, about this bitter, nasty, jaded wife. And I actually changed my mind about this last year. I've been through some pretty horrific persecution and and trials and stuff in my life before. And I know now what Job's wife was saying. She wasn't this horrific, sinful, unbelieving Yahweh hater. She loved her husband so much that to watch him suffer crushed her. And she said, you know what? I'm just about willing to give up our soul to watch you stop suffering. So just do whatever it takes to stop suffering. And if you look at Job's wife that way, boy, that looks like a killer marriage to me. Yeah, we, have any of us ever said something that we ended up not meaning later? Yeah. We didn't all raise our hand because all of our answers was yes. And I've said things like that before. I'm like, God, I see what my wife is going through. You know, just, just give it to me. Let me suffer and struggle because of that. And then I hear Jesus say, oh, you want to be Jesus? Because last I checked, I put my punishment on him. You follow me, Joe. You pray for her. You be there by her side. The spiritual realm does honor that one flesh. But if we give a wedge in and we give a foothold to Satan, as the New Testament talks about, we ask for trouble. And one of the ways that we ask for trouble is allowing the in-laws to become outlaws, is to allow somebody else to speak authority over our marriage except for us and our Jesus. And it's very important to realize that You'll see the next point is that marriage is a picture of the work of the gospel. When the gospel begins to work in us, in fact, just switch to Ephesians 3. When the gospel begins to work in us, you begin to see that I can't hold back things in my life if I want the complete work of Jesus. Amen? No one agrees? We can't hold things back, can we? If God says, I want all of your life, we'll say, "Um, well, you can have this because I don't really like this. But the rest of this I'm going I'm to hold on to. And we do that. Marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel. Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says this. He says, we are parts of his body. We're all one. And he looks at us spiritually that way. Scripture says, that's why a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one. So here's what's confusing about this. He's mixing in marriage. He's mixing in the gospel. He's mixing in Christ and the church. And he gets, it gets really confusing because it should be, because the next verse says this. This is a deep mystery. It doesn't really make sense of of why this is connected, but it is a perfect picture, a perfect connection. The most amazing and powerful marriages I've ever seen or the times that I've experienced in my life is that when oneness was my focus, oneness, and it's the same for my relationship with Jesus. If I'm content to sit down and just allow his scriptures to get into me and just sit there and just sit in a chair and, and just get to know God, Man, that's a powerful devotion time. I, I talked to a guy this week in, in a mentoring session, and one of the things that we were talking about was the difference in devotions. A lot of Christians have devotions, and they'll read the Bible up until they recognize the Scripture and then call it done. 
I read and read and read and read. I'm like, oh, I don't recognize this. And greater is he that is in you than he's world. Oh, amen. Oh, praise the Lord for a great devotion time. But we miss the entire context around that. And we read up until we're familiar and we stay comfortable and we go about our day and complain of why is Satan so powerful in my life? Look at the marriage. Everything's great as long as the sun's out. Just this week, I've had three calls for marriage counseling. And the first statement is, I'm fine with that, but I need, you need to realize something. Because next year, it's going to be the same conversation. At the end of January, all of us have lost the ability to hide all of our problems, and our masks come off, and that's when we rip everybody's face off in our home and in our marriage. Now, that's not a reason to say, I hope the sun comes back, because what this does is this is a chance to have a powerful marriage because we finally stop being fake and we get it fixed. And if that's you, I've seen it happen in our life. My wife and I's life last year, last winter, was very rough. And God used it to keep the mask from coming back on when the sun came back. And praise God for that. So realize that as we get into uh, looking at, I know this kind of got into a marriage teaching, but it's somewhat fitting for the next question. I want us to read the last point for this. When we hold back something from oneness with our spouse, we are inviting the devil in. Now, I can't identify what that holding back is. It could simply just be time. I'll tell you, usually for me, a red flag in a marriage is separate vacations. Why in the world would I ever want to take a vacation from my spouse? Well, Joe, you don't know. No, you don't know. Now, sometimes things necessitate separation, and I get that. I get that. The one that I remember getting in the biggest heated discussion was years ago, talking with a couple. It wasn't counseling. It, just, it turned into it in our, on a couch. And they, I said, well, what are the ways that you guys are, what's, what do you usually fight about? And the, and the one guy sat up very proudly. It's, it's like a kid, like, I just did something cool, let me tell you. And he says, Joe, best thing we ever did for our marriage. We always used to fight about money. I said, yeah, what did you guys do? Did you start doing a budget together? He goes, no, we just got separate bank accounts. Guys, you made money. You're God. No, 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 you don't understand it. We literally are close to divorce. So you removed the chance to be fixed by God and left the pride. That's not the fix. The fix is... Stop being a control freak, ma'am, and stop being a spendthrift, dude. Problem solved. Quit being selfish. Make that oneness. You don't understand, pastor. There are things that we just can't do together. No, you don't understand. You're denying the work of God in your marriage. I don't know who I just said that to, but listen to me. Don't allow something in between you and your spouse ever. Ever. Not time, not money, not vacations, not e- even certain things. I'll tell you right now, ladies, there are some dumb things that your dudes want to do, aren't there? Do it with them. It's loud. Do it. It's bright. Do it. Because he doesn't like any of your dumb knitting or sewing. And if you want him to do it with you and be your model for that new skirt, <laughs> dudes telling you that's a, not that it's from experience at all i'm not no i'm just saying hypothetically that could be a great set of tray of brownies all right we got to go to the next question all right 
Remember, the work of Jesus in our life has the same oneness issue. That's why the gospel's connected. All right, question two. All right, I think I've decided that you all hate me. Now that you read the question. I think it's funny that the person who asked this, I know who they are and they're not here. They're going to pay for this. So, when we first read this question, raise your hand if you absolutely positively know right now what the answer is. Okay? I'm fine with that. I'm totally fine with that. You notice I didn't raise my hand? Now, I did have someone tell me I was a coward. And my response to them was, no, you're just mean. Because they didn't want to hear what I had to say. Now, I will never, ever, 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 ever call sin good, ever. But I also will never try and get so high on the moral high road that I'm evangelistically totally useless. And I've told you testimony after testimony of great opportunities that I've had to witness to people that were homosexual, that were actively involved in three-part relationships and so on. I wasn't sitting there filming going, hey, go for it, guys, and by the way, Jesus loves you. Absolutely not. But you know what? When we walked by the person who was swinging a KJV in the air, he's screaming at them, you're going to hell, and he looked at me and said, that's the reason I could give a uh about God. And I said, you know what? If I were you, I'd be the same way too. Because that's not how God operated. In fact, the lowest of the lows, the prostitute who was full of demons, had Jesus, what, come up and gently heal her. Not sit there and go, you dirty little, you know what, you need to bleep this, disciples, when you write it in the Bible. You, and just rail on her. What did he do that to? The useless, bigoted religious people. It's scary to me to see that. Because we're tempted to do that. If you look at the first point here, I want us to realize a couple things. We in America specifically have actually idolized marriage. And, and I want us to be very, very clear on something. The first point you'll see here, marriage itself does not sanctify. It doesn't purify. It doesn't create something that it fixes a wrong relationship. In fact, I realized this years ago. I had gotten to a point with my unsaved friends who were dating and living together and, and, and actively, passionately fornicating. And I remember that I actually felt more okay with their life after they got married. How dare I? The only sin that Jesus can't forgive is not accepting him. Every other sin will be forgiven of man but that one. Name an unforgivable sin. The one that's not requested to be forgiven. There's there's nothing. So if I look at marriage, and marriage isn't the redemptive power of Jesus. Jesus is the redemptive power. So we, we have to get away from idolizing marriage. Now just stay calm. Keep your blood pressure down. We're going through it all. I don't care if the marriage is hetero or homo. The, the, the marriage itself doesn't fix or change those people. So here's the next point. Man's number one need is to be reconciled with the Creator. Anybody disagree with that? That's our number one need. If I go to hell, or sorry, if I die and I'm not hungry, I'm still going to hell. 
If I die and I'm actively engaged in some sinful lifestyle, I'm still going to hell. If I die and I have that devotion to Jesus and I have a bunch of mistakes and sins and, and trespasses, whatever words you want to use for it all, hanging out in there, but it wasn't my lifestyle and I was devoted to Jesus, I'm still going to heaven. I'm still going to be with him when I die. See, moral perfection isn't what sends us to heaven. We have to realize that. The fact that I've chosen to be more American than the other person doesn't make me going to heaven. I might have a less mean life. I might be more socially accepted in certain circles because I allow certain moral types of things to bother me or not bother me. But man's number one need is to be reconciled with the Creator. And we have to realize that that has to be our engagement picture. That has to be our target. And everything else becomes blurry. Because if they don't have Jesus, it's not gay to straight. It's not, it's not uh, you know, good or bad to good. It's not immoral to moral. What did we say last week? It's lost to found. It's dead to alive. And just like in Corinthians, Paul says, here's this list of things that are going on. But there's one thing that fixed these. We'll read that in a second. Here's the next point for us to consider. Only we are eternal. Marriage is not. Marriage isn't. Marriage was a gift given to us. Marriage is a picture given to us. It's blessed. It's honored. It's prescribed, meaning there is a set way to do it. I'm not, I'm not going to minimize the power and the purpose of marriage at all. But it's also not eternal. Matthew twenty two thirty. Jesus answered. Next, people, humans, they cannot change the definition of something that was ordained by our Creator. Just because someone wants to use the same title, it doesn't change what marriage is. It doesn't, and I'm not minimizing the the type of care that people would have in a immoral relationship. But you can call it whatever you want to. It's not marriage unless it follows the one who prescribed what marriage was. It's very simple. If I decided to name one of my children Shaniqua, and you said, well, I don't know if I like that name. That's just too long. I'm going to call her, you know, Billy. Then I'm going to say you're wrong. And it doesn't matter what you say. Her name is Shaniqua. Anybody ever want to name their kid Shaniqua? My wife wouldn't let me, so. Here's the next one for us to consider. Scripture's charge to us is to fight for the faith. Not, not to fight for better legislation so our morals aren't compromised and we feel comfortable. Not at all. I remember having a conversation with a guy who had done missions work in Europe. And he said, man, it was weird coming back over to America. I said, why is that? He goes, Man, you guys are still fighting so hard. It's unf- I hate to be this way, Joe, but natural progression throughout thousands of years of history is that sexual immorality, when it takes over a country, you have this massive polarization between morality, but the gospel just starts to die. Because people get so up in arms because they're uncomfortable with the immorality, and Jesus never gets talked about because you make me feel weird, and you need Jesus but wait, wait. We can easily outline someone is wrong in their life and do it in a way that's loving that you can still maintain a relationship. I have several friends of mine that are homosexuals. They know I am absolutely 100% against it. And it doesn't make sense to them that I still talk to them. 
He had a move to one end of the country. It was a safe move. He made a post on, on Instagram and said, it's finally a safe move across the country. It was a picture of Seattle where they had moved to. I said, congratulations. I'm glad you guys are safe. You, you, you support gay relationships, Pastor? No. I support the souls that we're supposed to be broken over. I'm not going to officiate their wedding. I'm not going to do it because it's not a wedding. But there are times in our life where we are invited into someone's life when we shouldn't be, when it doesn't make sense. I've even had atheist friends of mine say, you know what, I want to visit your church because I really believe in you and I believe in what you're doing. I don't necessarily believe what you're talking about, but for some reason I just want to support you. And in my mind I'm like, sucker. And on the outside I'm going, thank you. Because they're going to hear the gospel when they come. And it's the same heart and care that we have to consider Next, moral sins are 100% forgivable. It's rejecting Jesus that isn't. Do do you believe that? Because there's a lot of times in our life that there are some sins that we don't say are forgivable. Although we say they will, but the way we act, we say we don't believe it. Our actions don't match our heart or our claims. Here's the next point. God does not approve of any sinful practice or lifestyle, and neither do I. And my loving someone, my caring for someone, my desiring a relationship with someone is not so I can say, it's okay, you keep sinning, Jesus loves you. That's total foolishness. That's like saying, it's okay. You're right, the road you're going down, you're going to get crushed, and your soul's going to be tormented forever, but Jesus loves you. That's what I'm saying. I can't be okay with sin because sin separates. Sin is suffering. Sin is brokenness. Sin destroys. So I'm not okay with sin. And neither is the Creator okay with sin. We should never be okay with that. But we should have the ability to separate someone who's bound and controlled and manipulated by sin and the fact they can be free from that. We have to be able to separate that. Next. You'll read there in 1 Corinthians. I love this. I love this. I love this. Paul. By the way, homosexuality was not something new. We remember reading about it in Sodom and Gomorrah and everything. This is something that is very, 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 very rampant. I just read recently that pirates had a system for homosexual marriage. Really strange. I never even knew. I always thought, oh, just strange. I don't know why that point just came up. I didn't even do drugs. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul is being very serious. He's like, guys, your lifestyle of wrongdoing, you don't get the inheritance. If the daddy you got ain't got nothing, you ain't getting nothing from my daddy. That's what he's saying. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality, it's very interesting those two are separated. It's actually those who have passive homosexual sex or those who have active homosexual sex. Oftentimes, a male prostitution was simply a way to survive. You see it in, in corporate structures these days to actually manipulate and get up at the corporate ladder, and you would never even know what happens. You see it in drug circles in order to get payment or get drugs and things like that. There's homosexual acts that happen to be able to get high. It happens all over the place. So it, it broke it down into passive and active. Next, or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive. That, I love the abusive one. It actually means... Uh, someone who is aggressive and yelling and loud and just nasty with people as a, as a practice and a habit. 
or, or people who cheat. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Those are not one-off statements. Every one of those phrases are lifestyles defined by this. And I wish someone would translate the Greek correctly on this section. There's a couple of translations that do a little bit better job. These are active engagements. If you're a postman, you're called a postman. That's what you're actively engaged with and you're defined by. That's exactly what these are. Last verse, I love this. I love this. Paul says, and some of you were once like that. Were once like what? The ones that Paul's writing to, there were male prostitutes. There were homosexuals. There were thieves. There were liars. There were ones that were abusive to their children and to their families. There were ones that had all these traits. He said, some of you were just like all the things I just listed here. And you aren't bad anymore because you tried real hard. No. He said, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right because you worked at it. With God, by calling on the name of of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, not once is it said in there that you got yourself some morals. It said you got yourself some Jesus. And then you were cleansed. And therefore the things that were desirable were no longer desirable. The things that drew us no longer drew us. It was Jesus that transformed it. The next point you'll see up there. Homosexuality, including marriage, and any of the other sins that we see listed in those verses, they're not unforgivable. They're not unpardonable. They're not unrepairable. It's not something that God goes, oh, well, great. He's homosexual. I can't do anything with it now. Jesus, you died for nothing for Frank. That's not what he says. Not at all. Now, are are certain sins horrific in their consequences? Yes. Yes. They absolutely are. And our creator who loves us doesn't want us to go through that. You'll see in Luke 19.10, you'll see the view that Jesus says. He says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost and make sure they do gooder and gooder and gooder at life. No, he said to seek and save the lost. Period. Period. He didn't get caught up in trying to moralize and, and, and change their personal or political views. And I want us to realize this phrase. I didn't put it in the notes. You can think about this. Morality, morality doesn't create, or, or better said, morality doesn't make us desire holiness. Holiness makes us desire morality. Think of that. Because I've been good enough, I don't need God. But when I realize I'm not good enough and he sets me apart, the only thing I want is to make him happy. Those are two different lifestyles, two very different lifestyles. So here I want to give us four or five things to think about with making a decision on an invitation to either be part of or officiate or whatever related to homosexual marriage. First thing I want to challenge us all to is say yes or no. Don't hide from the invitation because it's awkward. This is God saying, here, this person doesn't know the truth, and here's your open door. Double doors, walk through it. What are you going to do with it? Now, if it's a yes, then how do you justify that? How do you, how do you talk to them about that? If it's a no, the same thing. No, hey, man, I, I love you. I, I love the, the part of that you're with, but you guys know I don't support this, and I, I can't be part of that because I feel like I would support it and condone it. 
But don't just ignore it and hide from it. Because what that says is that we don't really believe in our faith. Our faith is too weak when it comes to supporting or not supporting the marriage. Our faith just needs to hide and be safe with me. Guys, we don't need to protect the gospel. We need to proclaim it. Number two. If this comes up, it cannot be a snap decision. And I'm challenging everyone in this. Think about it. Pray about it. Consider the eternal consequences of the decision, not just our personal comforts. Now, I'm not saying that this would change our decision, but we do this to make sure that when we make the decision and they come at us and challenge us, whether the Christian next to us or the non-Christian who's getting married to the homosexual, we have an answer for the faith that helped us make our decision. We have an answer. Number three, if my involvement directly condones the union and lifestyle, then the answer is no. Everybody can say, duh, right? We know that. But let me tell you, I actually talked with a couple of different people, and I looked around at some online forums and looked at how the public is viewing the, the, the new, it's, it's a big just explosion of these activities since 20, 2014, 2013. And the way that, that many generations today view marriage is not you're coming because you support the marriage. You're coming because you support one of the people as a person. Now, for me, I don't know that that necessarily makes sense to me. I've always enjoyed marriages that I supported, that I, that I looked at the two people, whether, whether hetero relationship or a homosexual relationship, and I looked at the two people and I said, that's right, and their marriage is going to be solid and strong, and I want to stand behind that. But it is very strange how people's view of marriage and of people has started to shift to the point that, yeah, I don't really agree with that, but I, I love this person. And I, and I really feel that I never would have been able to speak to them again if I didn't attend. I didn't make that decision personally. These are things that were said. These are relationships that I don't understand. I don't get it. I haven't had to make this decision yet. I will tell you that my involvement as a pastor makes me say no to all of them because I would be the one asked to officiate the wedding, and I can't. A wedding is God-designed and spiritually designed. Remember baptism when we talked about it? How baptism is a physical picture of the spiritual happening. So is marriage. It's a physical picture of the spiritual one flesh. Well, homosexual marriage doesn't work. You can't have one flesh, okay? It has to be a rib and a body missing a rib, and they're connected. That's it. God designed it. God designed it. Number four, evangelism is not taking the moral high road. I was listening to, I think it was Matt Chandler, and he said, if you have a moral conviction about alcohol, great, but don't believe that because you're not drinking a beer at the restaurant, the non-Christian is going to look across at your life and go, I want Jesus because he doesn't have a beer. Because that's not what's going to happen. We have to forget the foolishness that a moral high road tells people about Jesus. That coupled with my words and a faithful lifestyle can help when I communicate it. Absolutely. I'm not hating on moralities or morality itself. What I want us to be challenged in is oftentimes we go, oh, homosexuality, the Bible says it's wrong, I believe it's wrong, so you can't do that. Nope, done. Wait a second. 
There's a person there. We can't make that quick of a decision about a person. People are precious. People need Jesus. And I'm not here to defend God's moral structure. I'm here to defend the name of Jesus. Now, there's an easy no. I didn't put it up here. But if both of the people claim to be Christians, the Bible already says, have nothing to do with them. They claim to have the name of Jesus and they're having a homosexual marriage. That's an easy one. First Corinthians was written to that. Guys, put them out. Because you can't have the temple of the Holy Spirit and the temple of other gods trying to mix together. Doesn't happen. That's an easy no. I didn't include that. Sorry. You know, I, it wasn't too easy of a question. It wasn't awkward enough. All right, here's three questions I want us to, to think about before we get to the short question at the end. Number one, cha- I challenge all of us because I ask myself this question. Who, who, because of their sin, have you pushed aside? Something about their life has offended you, and so therefore they don't matter anymore. Who? Well, you don't understand, Pastor, because this person always wants me to go do this thing with them. And if they do that thing, they're going to be totally drunk, and I'm going to have to drive them home. And if I go with them, that's going to condone getting drunk. No, it's not. It may be because you're the one buying the drinks. Well, that's foolish. But we're not in control of other people. We're not. And we know when it's time to stop. I had a guy. I knew it. Every Friday night, he went to the bar, and he would get hammered, and he always had the taxi come at 1130. So I went out, had some wings with him. 630 comes around, had a, or finished some appetizers, had a burger at 7. And I said, hey, dude, I'm going to head home. going to go hang out with the family and everything else. He looked at me. He goes, I wish I had that. He says, I'm really glad you came out. This is probably the best part of the night. I'm probably going to regret the rest of my night. Wow! I had a terrible attitude going into it when I first went. (laughs) But wow, look at what God can do. It's impactful. So next, next question to ask, or maybe just a statement. We need to remember that forgiveness from Christ is available to all. Now, it's their decision to accept it, but it's available. He sits with an open hand. This is for you. All, this is for you. But we have to put ourselves aside and take it. Here's the last thing for us to consider in this question. Am I so morally right that I am evangelistically useless? Now, I can tell you I got that way for many years. I could, I could list off, remember the, the statements from last week's message about the things that Christians or non-Christians think about Christians. I could list off all the things I was against and everything that was wrong that I didn't do. And I just was shoving people over the edge to hell on a regular basis with my attitude. Even people who wanted to be mentored couldn't even stand to be around me. That's different than the normal people just don't like being around me kind of thing. Three people laugh like, hey, man. Pastor Joe at risechapel.com. All right, next question. This question was from one of our kids in the kid ministry. I love it. It's so cute because, like, one of the letters are backwards. These are always the best questions, too. 
And I love the progression that the Holy Spirit does these questions in. We, like, set up the context of marriage, right? And then we talked about homosexual marriage, but realistically, the problem isn't homosexual marriage. It's our response in our hearts to the person. And then we get to the third one is, why did God create sin? And I think of this little guy. That's a hard question, because in some ways you might feel like it, because it exists, you think it's created, right? Well, go to the answer. It's a short answer, but trust me, you know I'm not happy with that, right? There's got to be more to say in this. No, sin is, sin is not created. All right, so here's some things to think about. God's initial creation, and you'll see it up on the screen, God's initial creation was pronounced as very good at the beginning. No, God has never called sin good. You go through all throughout Scripture, he never gets to a point where he's like, well, that's not too bad, so I'll put it in the good category. No, it's always called evil. Why? Because it separates his creation from him. It's a practice that separates his creation from him. You'll see it here when, when God finished in creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. He says, God saw everything he had made, and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning. It was day six. Of course, we know at the end of day six was when creation ceased and God took rest. So what is sin then? You'll see that question on here. What is sin? You know, a lot of times we'll have some biblical or theological or harmatheological, which is a study of sin. I might make you guys say that with me because that's pretty nerdy. Harmartiology. It's a study of sin. So what is sin? A lot of us would say, well, it's, it's missing God's perfect mark. And, and that's true. That's kind of a literal definition of the word sin in the Old Testament. But there's like nine other ways that the word sin is, has a little bit more throughout the Old Testament to communicate different things. doesn't make it less evil. doesn't make it less horrific. So what I want us to look at is ne- the next thing, the root, the root of sin, the, the base thing that's down there, the root of sin is worship and devotion. We, ha- we have to realize that, that the root of sin is worship and devotion. Not that sin is worshiping and being devoted, but the root of it all. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Why do I act like that's so important? Well, you'll see the next point, that taking that worship and devotion and using it isn't wrong. It's how we use them that makes it wrong or right. Remember that. There's a lot of things that we demonize, and even certain uh, denominations have gotten very up in arms about, well, you know, worship has been used to worship other gods. Worship has been used to promote sexuality and so on. So we don't have drums in our worship, but we don't have worship at all because it could be sinful. I don't agree with that. In fact, I strongly disagree with it because why? We were designed to worship and be devoted to God. If we've corrupted it, fix the corruption and go back to what God created us to do. Absolutely. Now, here's what sin is, though. Sin is using that worship and devotion for anything other than Yahweh, our creator. If I have worship and devotion and I give... The, the, the beauty about the word, word, word worship is it's worth-ship. It's giving worth through my life and activities to that which I'm focused on. Devotion. What do we say about, well, what should you do in the morning? You should have a devotion time. Why do we call it devotion time? Because it's proof that we're devoted to him and not ourselves and not other things in our life. Sin is using that worship and devotion for anything other than Yahweh. If I have a a tool, 
and I use it wrongly, the tool isn't the problem. It's how I used it that's the problem. I want us to realize, you'll see it up there as the next point, worship and devotion, it's what we were designed to do. It's really the primary function from God's perspective for us. It's a challenge. It's, it's a big challenge because this statement right here would drive anyone to question what we do every single day. Am I truly worshiping and being devoted to? Here's another way to take the, all that long stuff. Give glory. Give glory. It was about a year ago we talked about the glory of God and I had a kids throwing the ball back and forth. And we take the glory of God from him by stepping in and catching in the middle of all that and go, oh, I'll take this glory for me because I'm amazing. We take the glory that belongs to God. You'll read in Isaiah up on the screen, Isaiah 43, God is talking through the prophet and he wants his people back. He says, listen, bring back everyone who belongs to me. I created them to bring glory to me. I created humanity to bring glory to me, he says. That's their purpose in creation. I formed them. I made them. I'm the one who made them and tell them how their life should be. You want purpose in life? Do it how the creator said to do it. You want to have something that, that makes sense about our day-to-day life, that makes sense about why things are happening and what's going on in our life? Go to the creator who designed life and see what he has to say. My recommendation is go every morning. Do you like that? It's kind of a... Go every, one person's giggling at it. All right. You know, we need, I need Joe Dacosta's here. He always laughs at my jokes. Next point. Here's the question. Who or what will we worship? That's really the question. The question isn't a matter of, of you know, is this worship bad or is that worship bad? And I've watched so many foolish discussions. I actually unfriended someone on Facebook today, yesterday. Because they were arguing over, it's the second time they've done this, arguing over politics and worship music styles. And they spent more time going, well, you know, they, they have these like 10-minute worship songs, and I think that's just foolishness. I'm like, man, you must not love Jesus. Because I'll tell you right now, there is no music that's loud enough or long enough for me. That's just how I am. We should desire to just want to know. That's what theology is. It's, it's studying and, and knowing our God. Theology is so important. It's not just for nerds. It's for every Christian. Nerds like it a lot. We kind of make it boring sometimes. But. So let me close with defining sin in a couple of statements. You'll see it up here on the screen. Darkness is not the presence of dark, but the absence of light. We get that. If I, if I put something here and you see a shadow there, it's like, oh, school field just made darkness. No, cave people. I just put my hand in front of a light, okay? We know that. I didn't mean that mean. I was joking. If any of you are cave people. Just like that, sin is the absence of the right usage of God-given functions in his creation. Sin is horrible. Sin is evidence of our worship that will send us to a place we don't want to be. We will be without our creator. Sin. 
is the absence of the right usage of God-given functions in his creation. And I love how James McDonald says it. We have a choice, and he says this, when we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. When we choose to commit our worship and devotion to other gods, to other spiritual forces, or just simply to something because I feel like it, we're choosing to suffer. And, and, and here's the craziness, and you guys can close your Bibles, and you'll see some points up on the screen, and, and you don't have to copy them, or if you want to take a picture of them, I don't care. But I want, to, I want us to, to begin closing, because here, here's what we, we have to realize. Because of choosing to worship others, when we die, our souls belong to whom we worshiped. That's, that's a fact all throughout scriptures. We belong. We have chosen. When you give devotion and worship over, you now have given the ownership of you and what you were created for over. Well, I don't believe that. I make my own destiny. That's great. Delusion is a problem with people too. We were designed to glorify. And if we glorify others and not our creator, then the others are the ones who have our soul. But here's the next point. Jesus came to defeat and did defeat the hold on our life. And he provided a way out from being trapped in death and away from our Creator. Yes, sin is horrible. Sin is dark. But here's the thing that I want us to realize is that there is no sin that holds us away from God except for one, and that is accepting Jesus done. We can't get cleaned up to come back to or come to Jesus. It's impossible. It starts with just accepting him because he's the one that's the original target for our glory to give to. He's the one. So let's bow our heads this morning as we close. And, and, I, and I just want to, to lay it out there very clearly for all of us this morning. Is there anyone this morning that wants to give that worship and devotion back, or maybe for the first time, to Jesus? Raise your hand. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? To break that hold. Maybe this morning, it could just be simple. And God showed us that there is someone that we've cut out because they didn't meet our moral standards. I'd love to pray with you this morning to just rededicate to the work of the gospel and not the work of morality, to the work of of, of Jesus and, and the Holy Spirit and not simply being gooder. Who wants to pray with me this morning on that? Amen. Amen. Anyone else? Amen. And we can all pray together. God, I, I want my worship and devotion to be all for you. I don't want anything to, to get in between me and my wife. So expose those wedges, Lord. I don't want anything to get between me and you, God. So expose the areas where I'm trying to be good enough to make you like me. And God, I pray that We would live a life that we realize how precious your creation is to you. And we would never, never 
not show someone their sin, but we would do it with a solution in mind. Because exposing sin without the message of Jesus is pointless. God, I pray that we would give that message of Jesus. I pray that we would be filled with your spirit, that we would be overwhelmed with what you want to do, God. That we would be driven by the same thing that drives you, Jesus. And it's in your name we ask these things. May your will be done. Amen.